in his book, How to Find Yourself, Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer. Brian Rosner writes a prayer that captures the heart of our age. He calls this prayer the prayer of the authentic self, and it mirrors the Lord's prayer kind of line by line. Here it goes. The prayer of the authentic self. My essence within. Help me to find my authentic self. My kingdom come. My will be done from birth to seventh heaven. Give me today my daily spread and forgive not my enemies as I suppress those who sin against me. Lead me not into self-doubt, but deliver me from all external authorities. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are mine now and forever. Amen. When we hear a prayer like this, we can hear just how ridiculous it sounds, can't we? You see, our age, our current moment is, is uniquely prideful. And the influencers of our moment have chosen a single word to encapsulate the spirit of our moment. What's that word? Pride. It's, it's everywhere. People openly admit it. This is the age of the self. Now, although our age is uniquely prideful, pride's been around for a long time. <laughs> pride has been the human condition ever since the Garden of Eden. You know, what, was, what, what part of the serpent's sales pitch really convinced Adam and Eve to take the fruit from the forbidden tree? It was the part that said, you guys could be like God. Ever since then, human beings have had that same prideful heart, that same prideful desire. We want to replace God with ourselves. In our final study in the book of Proverbs, we look to um, what it has to say about pride and humility. And as a result of our time, we want to pray no longer to our essence within. We want to pray to our Father in heaven. We want to find ourselves no longer by looking inward but by looking upward. We want no longer to elevate ourselves above God, but to submit ourselves to God. This is the way of life. But my friends, if this change is gonna take place, it will take humility. Let's summarize Proverbs' message on humility. We could say this, when we understand the truth about God and the truth about ourselves, we won't be proud, but humble. And this is the way to life. We'll see how this, that summary or that message unfolds by answering three big questions throughout our time. Question one, what is pride and where does it lead? Question two, what is humility? Where does that lead? And question three, how do we become humble? So question one, what is pride? Where does it lead? Let's read a few Proverbs and see what the book has to say about pride. Uh, you'll find these in your handouts in the bulletin. Um, I invite you to keep an eye on those throughout our time. What Proverbs has to say about pride? Proverbs 10 verse 8 says, The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. 13.13, Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. 14.12, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. 16 verse 2, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. 26 verse 12, you see a man who is wise in his own eyes. There's more hope for a fool than for him. 27 verses 1 to 2. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. 28, 13. 
Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The next verse, 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Last, 30, verse 12. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. So we're trying to answer the question, what is pride? And we could break it down into two big categories. Category one, pride is too high a view of yourself. Category two, pride is too low a view of God. Pride is too high a view of yourself. Did you notice all the ways that the proud person views himself in these verses? 16.2 or 30 verse 12, a proud person views himself as a pure or a good person. Let me think about it. That's the the assessment that's most natural to you and me. That's the assessment everybody's trying to work toward. I'm a good person. 26 verse 12, a proud person views himself as a wise person. 27 verse 1, a proud person views himself as being able to control his circumstances. Now, notice that 27 verse 1, it doesn't condemn the person who plans for tomorrow. It condemns the person who boasts about tomorrow. The one who acts as if he can know and control everything that's to come. Now, you and, you and I, friends, we might not boast about tomorrow, but I bet you and I act like we can control tomorrow, don't we? For example, if, if you have yet to trust in Christ, if you have yet to declare publicly your trust in Christ, even via baptism, you might be putting that off in part because you think you'll always have tomorrow. That's a high view of your own control, friend, to think that tomorrow is automatic. Jesus talks about someone who has that attitude in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. It's a rich man who always thought tomorrow would be there, but whose life was required of him that very night. Give me another example. You and I act like we can control tomorrow. I know in many ways, worry is a natural human response, that anxiety is very complicated and has layers to it. But so much of worry, so much of anxiety is living out the future before it actually gets here. You and I might obsess over potential future scenarios in our lives because you think that when you do that, you can control the future scenarios of your lives. This this gives us a little hint that you don't have to be pompous and arrogant to have too high a view of yourself and what you can do. According to Proverbs, a proud person is able to have too high a view of himself because he is his own authority, because he's his own authority. Look at the basis of the proud man's assessment. Notice he's wise in his own eyes. He is pure In his own eyes, he operates according to the way that seems right to him. So you, the proud person is their own authority. You hear this in how people talk even today, that the highest virtue is not living in accordance with the truth. The highest virtue today is living in accordance with my truth. That's being your own authority. The proud person is his own authority. That's that, and when you do that, that's how you can twist or dismiss any evidence that tells you you are not good, you are not wise, and you are not in control. When you are your own authority, you can twist or dismiss any evidence that says that. 
One of my favorite examples from the Bible, it's actually a really sad story, it comes from 1 Kings uh, chapter 22. It's when King Jehoshaphat and King Ahab, the kings of Judah and Israel respectively, consulted together to determine, should we go to war with Syria or not? And so they decided, we're going to ask all the prophets. And all the prophets tell them, yeah, go ahead, go for it. And then Jehoshaphat asks Ahab, hey, Ahab, um, are there any other prophets out there? And Ahab's like, wow, unfortunately, yeah, there's this one other guy, but I can't stand him. You know why I can't stand him? Because he never prophesies anything good about me. (laughs) You you see, Ahab is his own authority. So he's able to dismiss or twist any evidence to the contrary that he's not wise in himself, that he's not sufficient in himself. We, we laugh at Ahab, but guys, we're, we're no different, are, are we? Ever since we're children. If we do bad on a test, oh, it's not because I didn't study. It's because the test wasn't fair. If I strike out three times at a baseball game, it's not my fault because my coach didn't set me up with an opportunity to succeed. Now, listen, are there unfair tests? Are there bad coaches out there? Sure, of course. But if we are our own authority that assesses everything, then we're going to have a tendency to think that we are always the victim. We are always in the right and never in the wrong. A proud person has too high a view of himself. He is his own authority. And that means he is who is most important. Getting his way is what matters the most. His assessment is what matters the most. His appearance even is what matters the most. Look at 28, 13. His appearance is what matters the most. That's why he covers up his blemishes. Now, I'm not the first person to, re- to observe this, but the Instagram and the Facebook version of people is not the same as the real life version of people. But let me tell you something. There's an added layer to it that's even scary. Even if you're able to be a little more open about the hard parts of your life on something like social media, that doesn't mean that you're free from living up for appearances. You can do that just to give the appearance that you're this special, authentic kind of person. A proud person. What is pride? It's having too high a view of yourself. It's being your own authority. It's being who is most important. Now, it's common for people to say that our problem, our, our deepest problem is that we have too low of self-esteem. But here, this is telling us that the problem isn't with high self-esteem or even with low self-esteem. It's with self-esteem in general. Because even the person who has low self-esteem is still centered on themselves. The problem with self-esteem is that it keeps you self-centered. And this, this kind of attitude and perspective can affect many well-meaning but not so thoughtful Christians. Many people teach and read the Bible as if it's a book all about you, a book all about how I can grow, a book all about how I can be the hero, like the heroes in the Bible. My friend, the Bible isn't about you. The Bible might be for you, but the Bible is about God. It's his self-revelation that culminates in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the hero. We're the ones who need rescuing. It's about how we can be reconciled to God and know him and live for him now and forever. What is pride? It's having too high a view of yourself. The other side of pride is having too low a view of God. And we can be even more precise than that. Look at 13.13 and 28.14 again. 
These verses describe the proud person's heart. The proud person, it doesn't just dismiss the word. He despises God's word. His heart is hardened against God as opposed to having faith in God. You see, when you have too high a view of yourself, God becomes the one who threatens your autonomy. When you have too high a view of yourself, God becomes the rival king who sets out to dethrone you. When you have too high a view of yourself, God becomes a threat to the one who is most important to you, yourself. When you have too high a view of yourself, God's assessment tells a different story than your own assessment. God's assessment tells you that you are not good or wise or in control. And so the proud person either has to dismiss God's assessment or has to twist God's assessment so that God is, is, uh, serves his own agenda so that the proud person makes a God in his own image. When you begin with too high a view of yourself, you will end up seeing God as a cruel bully who is out to kill your joy. This was the heart of the people in Noah's day. God's word interrupted and threatened their regular scheduled program of pleasure-filled, carefree, self-centered lives. And so the people of Noah's day despised God's word. They operated based on their own assessment and they dismissed God's word as an irrelevant fantasy. So I think if you're interacting with this and you might think, I don't think I have pride in the sense that I have too high a view of myself. You know, I don't really think I'm overly self-centered. Well, this second category of pride will help you because anytime you and I sin, anytime we disobey God's commands, it's an act of pride. It's an act of exchanging ourselves for God. It's an act of operating based on our own wisdom, operating based on our own definition of good, operating based on our own desire to be in control. So that means that pride isn't just disregarding and displeasing God. Pride is wanting to displace God. It's wanting to be him. It's wanting to be your own Lord and your own savior. And so where does that lead? Where does pride lead? Proverbs tells us 11 verse 2, it says pride leads to disgrace. 13 verse 13 and 16 verse 18, pride leads to destruction. 28, 14, pride leads to calamity. 29, 23, pride leads to being brought low. 14 verse 12, pride leads to death. Why does pride lead here? Well, if the heart of pride is displacing God, wanting to be God instead of him, then pride has all of these bad outcomes straight up because you and I do a bad job at being God. Read the book of Judges. You'll find a cycle that repeats. Destructive, calamitous outcomes happen over and over again. It gets so bad that Israel almost entirely destroys one of their own tribes. And what's the constant refrain that, just, that explains these destructive and calamitous outcomes? It comes over and over again in Judges. It goes like this. In those days, Israel had no king. They did what was right in their own eyes. Friends, don't believe the lie that just because something feels natural to you means that it must be good for you. When we are our own gods, we bring harm to ourselves and to others. And because God is just... He will address the damage we have caused with our pride. You and I do a bad job acting like we're God. 
That's not who we were made to be. You and I weren't made to live based on our own truth, our own goodness, or our own control. That leaves us destroyed and disappointed. Why does pride lead to these bad outcomes? Well, it's because of God's justice. He must address the damage we've caused with our pride. But it's also because of God's jealousy. The Bible says his glory he will not give to another. God can't allow anyone else to act as God because no one else is God. This is why he opposes the proud. It'd be more ridiculous than a three-year-old becoming the parent or a leader of a family. But that's what pride is. It's an act of rebellion. It's an act of treason. It's an act of mutiny. It's an attempted coup to dethrone God's rightful rule over your life. In our pride, we have set ourselves up in the position that God alone deserves to be. So second big question, what is humility and where does that lead? I think we can use the same two categories that we use for pride. If pride is too high a view of yourself and too low a view of God, then humility is an accurate view of yourself and a high view of God. The humble person doesn't have too high a view of himself. He has an accurate view of himself. Opposite of the proud man in 16 verse 2, the humble man knows that he is not pure. Opposite of the proud person in 26 verse 12, the humble person knows that he is not wise in himself. Opposite of the proud person in 27 verse 1, the humble person knows he can't control everything. 29 verse 23 says that the humble man is lowly in spirit. All of this means that humility begins with confession. Humility begins with confession. Confession that I'm not good in myself. Confession that I'm not wise in myself. Confession that I'm not sufficient in myself. Confession that I don't control everything. When you have an accurate view of yourself, Proverbs says that it frees you to be open and teachable. Proverbs 10 verse 8 says that the wise of heart will receive commandments. 13, 13 says that, that he, will, he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. 15, 31 says that the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. It's, it makes sense, doesn't it? Why would the wise person be open and teachable if, the, if uh, the proud person, that is, why would the proud person be open and teachable if he already knows everything? If he's already always right? You see, until you confess that you need help, you won't receive help. So I think just a couple nights ago, we had a, a Friday night, we had a biblical counselor come and, and speak to us. And maybe a lot of us would say, I, I don't need counseling because there's no major crisis in my life. But the humble person doesn't need a major crisis to know that he needs help. He has an accurate view of himself, sort of like a car. You can't drive a car endlessly without ever needing maintenance. And cars will last longer and run better if their owners maintain them instead of just waiting until they break down. So for you as an individual or for you as a married couple, you'll last longer and run better if you acknowledge, I always need help and not just wait until you break down. Maybe think about it from this angle. The humble person confesses the truth about himself. So unlike the proud person, the humble person's not consumed with keeping up appearances. 
The proud person wants to maintain an image that people will be impressed with. The humble person isn't scared of people seeing faults in him because he openly confesses the faults he sees in himself. So since the humble person confesses his sin, he isn't, be, he isn't afraid to be confronted with his sin. In fact, he, the humble person even invites and asks for feedback and constructive criticism. And it makes sense. If you're humble enough to admit your need for growth, that's the only time that you'll actually grow. So the humble person isn't devastated or defensive in response to criticism, even harsh or maybe even unfair criticism. The humble person can look for the kernel of truth and leave the rest. This isn't to say that the humble person can't be hurt, but the humble person has the posture that Charles Spurgeon describes. I love this quote. He says, brother, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. A humble person confesses the truth about himself or herself. Uh, and that's the first half of humility. You can't skip over that half. Consider this image from Isaiah 40, verse 4. It says, Every valley uh, shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be laid low. It works like this God's grace is like the water that rolls off the mountains of pride, but it is received in the valley of humility. Consider this image from John 10, verse 9. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. If we hold ourselves up in pride and stand straight instead of bowing low in humility, we will not be able to enter through the door of Christ. So confessing the truth about yourself is the first half of humility, but it's not the only half. It's not enough to confess that you aren't wise and good and strong in yourself. If you know that you aren't wise and good and strong in yourself, that's meant to lead you to God's wisdom, to God's goodness, and to God's strength. Without that second half, we're like jars emptied, who are empty themselves of pride but haven't been filled up with God. So throughout the Proverbs, these two halves go together all the time. Humility and the fear of the Lord go hand in hand, side by side. 1533 says the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility comes before honor, side by side. 22 verse four, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. So that means humility isn't just, I'm no longer my own authority. Humility is also, God is now my authority. Humility isn't just, I know my way isn't best. Humility is also, I know that God's way is the way to life. Humility isn't just, I know I can't control everything. Humility is also, I trust my God who does control everything. Humility isn't just, I, I know I'm not perfect, I know I'm sinful. Humility is also, I rest in God's mercy and God's goodness displayed in Jesus who lived the good life I didn't live and died the death I deserve for my sin. These are the two halves of humility. And these two halves of humility mean that you can be simultaneously defeated in yourself, but victorious in Christ. Simultaneously empty in yourself and yet filled with Jesus. As Martin Luther said, those who trust in Christ are simultaneously sinners and righteous. In ourselves, sinners, but in Christ, we are righteous.
These two halves of humility mean that the answer to low self-esteem isn't high self-esteem, it's Christ-esteem. It's replacing self with Christ. Friends, there's this this common narrative, uh, popular even among Christian circles, told especially to young women and girls. It kind of goes like, you are enough. Maybe you've heard something like that before. Now, I, I want to say that we should say that God has created each person with dignity and worth and value. And that has nothing to do with your outward appearance. That has nothing to do with your ability. That has to do with being made in the image of God. But while we say that, in a very real sense, you and I are not enough. But Christ is. Humility means coming to an end to yourself and finding yourself in him. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on on faith. That's what humility is. Where does it lead? talks about where pride leads. Where does humility lead? Well, Proverbs talks about that. Proverbs 3.34, humility leads to grace. 11.2.15.31, humility leads to wisdom. 18.12, 29.23, humility leads to honor. 28.14, humility leads to blessing. 22.4, humility leads to riches. Why does humility lead to all these good outcomes? Well, just like we thought about with pride, there are just natural or logical consequences to humility. Humility is the natural way to act honorably. That will mean giving grace to others and serving others with grace. So if pride is selfishness, it will lead to acting harmfully. If you commit to your own way, you'll look out for yourself and you'll have no regard for others. Humility, on the other hand, is selflessness. And that leads to acting honorably. It only makes sense if you have confessed your own desperate need for grace, you set yourself up to give grace to others. Jesus said that those who have been forgiven much love much. I talked about him last week, but it makes me think of another story from author Paul David Tripp. Uh, He tells this story way better than me, but uh, let's just say that your kid comes to you asking for help with a science project. And, and when, when would a child normally ask for help with a science project? You can probably guess it, the night before that it's due, right? And so already you're kind of on edge. And so you're, all right, what do you need? I, I, need, I need a poster board, I need construction paper. And then he kind of whispers it, I need 12 baby chickens. Uh. <laughs> like the pride in you the part that hasn't confessed your need of grace starts to boil into a self-righteous rage. And you say, what on earth? In my day, I would have never thought of asking my parents for help with a science project the night before. You know, in my day, we didn't even have science projects. I made my own science projects and taught myself. I was that noble of a student. I love it. Tripp says, you know, at this point, I'm sure your child is thinking, wow, what a kind and loving person. I should listen to him. He asks, do you really claim not to struggle with procrastination like your child does? 
funny examples. Don't you have a garage that you can't drive into anymore because it's on the verge of exploding with stuff? Don't you file an extension for your taxes every year? You see, if you, if you don't know your own need of grace, you won't give grace. It's not that you go without a standard, but you hold that standard with humility. So Tripp says, how about standing next to your son and saying, I know exactly how you got into this mess because I'm just like you. I tend to prioritize what's comfortable and put off what's uncomfortable until I get myself in trouble. But there's hope for you and me. Because God sent his son to forgive us and to rescue us from us and to empower us to do what we couldn't do apart from him. So how about reaching out to his help tonight, right now? No, I'm not gonna take you to the chicken farm. I'm not gonna write the magic note to your teacher. But I love you and I won't turn my back on you because I need grace like you do. Humility is the way to acting honorably. When you confess your desperate need of grace, you give and serve others with grace. Why does humility lead to the proverb, to the outcomes that Proverbs says? Well, there are just natural and logical outcomes to it. Humility is just the natural way to peace and to rest. You see, the proud person has to prove himself all the time, and he will end up restless because there will always be another rule. There will always be more to do. There will always be another person to impress. The humble person confesses that he could never do enough but rests in what Jesus has already done. The proud person who thinks that he's in, he controls everything or even tries to control everything will inevitably end up restless and in a panic. The humble person who confesses his weakness and his inability but is convinced of God's strength and God's sovereignty has rest. He takes Jesus' counsel and looks at the birds. Matthew six thirty four. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? That's a humble person's perspective. Why does humility lead to the outcomes that Proverbs describes? Well, just like for pride, it's because of God's jealousy and God's justice. The humble person comes to an end of themselves and gives all the glory to God. He says, not my will, but yours be done. C.S. Lewis reminds us that the humble person doesn't just think less of himself, he thinks of himself less. That's what Philippians 2 calls the mind of Christ, that he so preferred himself, uh, others over himself that he would even die for sinners. The Bible says that that same mind of Christ should show up in Christ's followers. So this afternoon, maybe reread Philippians 2 or Ephesians 4 and see how we won't have unity as a church unless we have humility. But for Jesus, the way of humility did not lead immediately to honor. For Jesus, the way of humility did not lead immediately to life, but to death. But in God's justice, God showed that he accepted Christ's sacrifice for our sin by raising him from the dead. He exalted the one who humbled himself. Jesus got the crown after he went through the cross. And Christian, don't think you're exempt from that pattern. What is it that the angels in heaven praise Jesus for? It's his humble sacrifice. Revelation 5, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Humility 
is Christ's most praiseworthy trait. Last big question will be short. How do we become humble? I've said it at other times, but the Bible bears it out over and over again. If our natural state is pride, then to become humble, you and I must be humbled. To become humble, you must be humbled. It's only when God encounters us with his wisdom and his strength and his goodness that we'll be humbled to confess our foolishness and our weakness and our badness. When we see the truth about God, we'll finally see the truth about ourselves. And we see these kinds of humbling encounters with God throughout the Bible. We see it with Isaiah in God's throne room. We see it when Peter's in the boat with Jesus and Jesus calms the storm. The pattern of the Bible is that the more we see God truly, the more we see ourselves truly. And we continue to grow in that. That's how the Apostle Paul could say at the end of his life, still, I am the chief of sinners. And that pattern bears itself out in Proverbs. Look with me at one last passage, Proverbs 30, verses 1 to 6. It says, the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor I have a knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Here in these verses is a man who has been humbled. He confesses his weariness in trying to do enough, his weariness in trying to know enough, his weariness in trying to be good enough. So he comes face to face with his weakness and his limit and his sin, and he looks around and sees that everybody else is in the same predicament. He asks things that no human being can do. No human being has complete wisdom and power. No human being has created everything. No human being, whether father or son, has done any of these things. This man is humbled by God's own unique power and wisdom and goodness. So this man turns not to human wisdom and strength. He turns to God's wisdom and strength because this is where truth and life reside. But this passage points us forward. Where is God's truth and power and wisdom and goodness shown? It's not in us ascending to heaven, but in God's son descending to earth. Jesus himself refers back to this section of Proverbs when he talks to Nicodemus in John 3. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So friend, you will only become humble when you are humbled by the greatness of Christ's humility. You'll become humble only when you are humbled by the greatness of Christ's humility. Friend, if you've never told this to God, today is the day to tell it to him. God, you alone are good and wise and strong. You alone are God and I am not. I am not wise, I am not weak, I have sinned against you, and I cannot save myself. But I trust in your son, who came to earth to live the good life I didn't live, and was lifted up on the cross to die for my sin, and who you rose from the death, from the dead. I no longer follow myself, I follow him. If you have not told that to God, today is the day to do so. Let us help you with that. You'll become humble only when you are humbled by the greatness of Christ's humility. Christian, this still must be true for you. 
Christ's humility should humble you. Reflecting on Christ's humility, one pastor asks whether our lives head in the same direction as Jesus's. Think of the escalators you see at the mall. Two escalators side by side, right? One's heading up and one's heading down. What is the direction of Jesus's life? It is a descent to humility. Who are we to look at our Savior? And just imagine this image that we pass him along the way on the escalator. Who are we to look at Jesus' descent and treat our lives to ascend in pride? Oh, friends, we must remember something like the words of Isaac Watts in his hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise you for your humility. And we we want to, we are humbled by it. Because we see you preferring others to yourself. And then we see ourselves, the, the truth about ourselves, that we just look out for ourselves. And our, our normal posture, our normal way of operating is that we are sufficient in ourselves and that we just serve ourselves. And yet, God, you, you came to rescue selfish people. Oh, goodness, thank you. Help us to live grateful, humble lives. <laughs> lives that know the truth about us, but also the beautiful truth about you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.